0: It's out of control, emissions keep climbing. We've been talking about it for 30 years. So I think a strong focus on legitimate system scale action is really important and we wanna play on that. We don't wanna play on day-to-day token environmental work. We wanna go big.
1: Hello, and welcome to Travel Beyond, where we partner with leading destinations to explore the greatest challenges facing communities and the planet, servicing their most inspiring solutions. I'm David Archer, Editorial Manager at Destination Think, and I'm recording from the coastal village of Geats, British Columbia, which is in Haida Gwaii, the territory of the Haida Nation.
2: And I'm Rodney Payne, CEO at Destination Think. I'm recording this from Revelstoke, British Columbia, a city on the territory of four First Nations, the Sinaics the Sushwepmek, the Silks, and the Tunaha. On this show, we look at the role of travel and choose to highlight destinations that are global leaders. We talk to the changemakers in those places who are addressing regenerative travel through action in their communities, often from the ground up.
1: And we're always looking for the best examples of those efforts to regenerate economies, communities, and ecosystems. So be sure to reach out if you have a story to share. Today, we're going to hear from Auden Schendler, who's the Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company. Aspen Skiing Company operates the Aspen Snowmass Resort Complex that includes four ski areas. And so it's a large company with a very large impact locally and potentially beyond. I'm really excited to play this conversation because I feel like it's the culmination of so many of the topics we've heard about in the previous five episodes and in other seasons for that matter. It's got big ideas, community engagement, values, philanthropy, and influence, seeing business through an environmental lens, diversifying the economy, and talking about what individuals can do about systems change. There's really, really a lot in this one, so you're going to want to pay attention.
2: I'm really looking forward to sharing my conversation with Auden. We got the chance to sit and talk at the bottom of the Ski Mountain And it's probably one of the more memorable conversations I've had in the last few months through this endeavour, interviewing a lot of different people. And I love Auden's action, not words. And I love how he's helped Aspen Ski Company to put values first and, and really influence the company to lead their decisions and lead their communication with values. And I think there's so much that people can learn from Auden that I kind of want to get right into it.
1: Yes. In that case, let's go straight into that conversation with Auden Schendler, Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company.
2: So let's start with a really, really easy one. Can you tell me your name and what you do?
0: Yep. Auden Schendler. I run the sustainability programs at Aspen Skiing Company.
2: What do you love about Aspen? How long have you been here?
0: So I've been in this valley for 30 plus years and at Aspen and Company for 25. What do I love about Aspen? This is a place where you can model radical solutions and get press for it. So you can share things out into the world. Basically, you have a soapbox. So that's what I love about it environmentally you know, geographically and physically, there's a whole lot of other reasons to love it.
2: You've been here a while and working in tourism for, you know, the, the big attraction in this destination. What does tourism bring to this community?
0: Well, it's a tourism economy. So the whole economy is based on people coming here. But what it brings, if you're thinking environmentally, is it's a, it can be a university where you have new people every day. So the vision might be, hey, people are coming through here, inject them with some of the dharma, you know, give them ideas and send them off into the world. That's sort of the vision of Aspen from the beginning. It wasn't just pure recreation. It was recreation with ideas and then an explicit mission of going out into the world and improving the world. I really like that.
2: You're foreshadowing one of my questions that we'll get to. What changes have you seen in Aspen since you've been here?
0: One of the comments on beautiful places is that the old old farts are like, it's ruined. And the people who showed up yesterday are like, it's the prettiest place I've ever seen. So you've got that dynamic. You've got more development. You've got kind of a housing crunch and the high ending of the valley. And at the same time, you still have these amazing cultural and also natural resources that are pretty much intact. So it's either ruined or it's the best place on earth.
2: Perspective is everything. So why is it important for communities that are tourism economies to be thinking about agency and sustainability?
0: Well, I mean, it's the basis of their their revenue and they need to maintain who they are and their identity. So it's basically everything that makes them interesting to visit. And Aspen's particularly that way, and it has its own unique weirdness. It's not a cookie-cutter place. What
2: happens if Aspen loses
0: its identity? Well, either it would still be popular, just with a less legit crowd, or it it loses its ability to attract people because they don't want to be part of something inauthentic.
2: As we enter a what might be a phase of decades of change and, and grappling with big issues, what advice do you have for policymakers and, and the, the people in charge of managing a destination on how they can really work well with a company like yours?
0: The big challenge is being brutally honest about what matters and what doesn't. I work in sustainability. Much of what happens in sustainable business, sustainable communities, is tokenism that doesn't move the needle. We've got a climate problem. It's out of control. Emissions keep climbing. We've been talking about it for 30 years. So I think a strong focus on legitimate system scale action, is really important and we want to play on that we don't want to play on you know day-to-day token environmental work we want to go big
2: your company has a huge footprint around the world are there any communities or policymakers that really like get you excited
0: they're good examples all over an adjacent community crested butte banned natural gas and buildings you know that's an example of Major success. There are fearless policymakers in the in the U.S. Senate. Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island is amazing. Uh, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, has been incredible and has passed uh, amazing, creative climate policy. And then Colorado is this unique leader on really obscure cutting-edge stuff like methane leakage in natural gas pipelines. It was the first state in the central U.S. to adopt uh, zero-emission vehicle standards that California pioneered. It just adopted a truck efficiency standard. It ratcheted down uh, hydrofluorocarbons. So this state, you know, Aspen happens to be a, a progressive node in a progressive state, and it's pretty exciting. Once the conversation gets to the kitchen table, you're done. Like we will solve this problem on, you know, think about interracial marriage. Once people start having those conversations and fights at the table, that issue was done. So that's encouraging to see people, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it wasn't even being talked about. Those
2: cultural tipping points are really powerful. It kind of gives me goosebumps a little bit. Yeah.
0: Well, it's it's social norm changing. And, you know, I, I tend to belittle the small stuff and you know the inadequate tokenism, but even that has a role in changing norms. We were not talking about climate policy 10 years ago, and now that's on the table. If you're an elected official in the US, you can't take a climate denial position anymore without being attacked on it, but that's only recent. Emissions keep going up, warming continues to happen, we're on a bad trajectory, In some ways, the only hope we have is that things in history move very rapidly and very abruptly.
2: We've zeroed in on climate quickly. I'm going to back us up. How would you describe the values of Aspen Ski Company?
0: So we have been what we call a values-based company for more than 30 years. And the vision is that it used to be that the mission of the company was to renew the spirit. But that's evolved really to say you're here to get renewed and go off and improve the world. So the company says our job is to be an agent of positive change in the world, not just a ski resort. And there's moral reasons for that, but also there are business reasons which include that people don't really want to come work for an organization that's selling lift tickets and hamburgers. So the current iteration of a longstanding mission is inspiring journeys within to enable possibilities for all. And if you live up to that, that's pretty cool. Imagine someone who has power, say, in the corporate sector, comes out here and is exposed to something we're pushing out. We have sustainability reports in hotel rooms. We have signs on chairlifts. We have educational lectures. And they get it. And they see what's happening here and they move on and they do something meaningful. That's profound. It's really important though to to recognize that if you don't act on that mission I just described, it it's a little pretentious and it could could actually be false. You know, are we actually changing people? That's hard work. You have to you have to make an effort. So I'm pretty hard-nosed about Aspen thinks it's the center of the world. It's not. It's got all kinds of problems, but it's a, if you think about, hey, if you were Aspen and you wanted to do something meaningful in the world, what would it look like? It's not recycling bottles over there. It's changing social norms. It's using this place to start a movement. It's wielding power and driving an outdoor industry movement that is broader than the little things you do when you're here.
2: That's a very inspiring mission. And I think you're, especially in today's hiring environment, so correct about needing a lightning rod that's more than just selling hamburgers and scanning ski passes to attract top talent. I I wish more businesses thought the way you talk. Does it feel widespread within the organization?
0: It didn't used to be. I've been in the company 25 years. The first eight years was... Spoon feeding everyone. Hey, this is the overreaching problem is climate. When we talk about sustainability, we're talking about being in business forever. But it was really me doing the work, my department. And now it's really pervaded the company. So as an example, when we build a new building, that building gets built really green, like shockingly green with almost no input from me. And it used to be that I'd do all the work and make sure I was on the design team and so forth. So it really is cool that it's, you know, it's not, oh, there's Auden. He does the environmental work. No, people take it on as their responsibility. Chefs in restaurants, you know, doing their own local purchasing, pick your area.
2: So to all of the frustrated sustainability managers who are sitting in a corridor office where their colleagues may or may not even know what they do, may not even know what their name is, what advice do you have for them? How did you infect your organization with a concern for being in business forever?
0: Yeah. So there are many frustrated corporate sustainability people. And I think my advice is that you, you do the work you're being asked to do, but you keep Pushing and prodding and looking for leverage and talking to your boss and saying, hey, is this all we want to do? Don't we want to do more and, and drive that change? So and that's what happened here. We started, you know, by changing light bulbs. And then we asked the question, is that enough? No, that's not enough. OK, what could be bigger leverage? And then we did the next thing and the next thing. So the beauty of a corporate sustainability staffer is that they're already within the corporation. So they're a mole you know, and they have some level of power. And really, I urge them to be insurgents, you know, and at some point, they might have to leave the company, but they might also change the company.
2: Where do you find the energy to keep pushing?
0: I work on climate primarily, at a time when you have a chance to save civilization, like what an amazing time to be alive. This is maybe the greatest battle in the history of humanity. And so That's inspiring to me. And then when you think about, well, what inspires human beings? Well, stories about fighting impossible battles. Let's think of a couple. The Bible, where evil is pervasive. The Lord of the Rings, where actually at the end it's not clear that you've won. Harry Potter. All the stories we tell ourselves are stories about impossible battles that we'll almost certainly lose. It's what we do as human beings. Mortality is another one. When it comes to
2: sustainability, how do you think about the interconnection between economic sustainability, social sustainability, and all the subcomponents of that, and environmental sustainability?
0: Well, you know, one thing that irritated me for years was you'd go to sustainability conferences and people would say, what is it? We have to define it. No, it's very straightforward. It means we want to be in business forever, whatever that business is. If you're a parent, How do you be a parent forever? If you're a school teacher, same question. If you're a ski resort, same question. And the suite of things you have to address if you wanna be in business forever include, yes, climate change is really important, but stable governance is important. Democracy is important. How you treat people is important. Housing is important. So it's all the same issue. Equity is important. These are, you know, this idea of sustainability encompasses all these things. And think about the interface of economic and environmental sustainability. The rate of warming is so great that in 50 years, you're going to have flooded the coasts where 70% of economic activity happens. So there you go. It's just all interconnected. And the, maybe the frustrating piece is it should be pretty obvious that solving climate is a is a good business move because... If you don't do it, it costs more.
2: Before I get into some of the specific examples of amazing action you've actually taken at Aspen Ski Company, because I think there's a lot of people who talk and and you've done some really amazing things. What makes your company care so much about the environment? What is it?
0: So why do we care so much about the environment? It was a CEO named Pat O'Donnell, who came in in 96-ish, who had been CEO of Patagonia. And he said, we should have an environmental department, the first in the industry. We should have guiding principles. That's where those values came from. And then those values permeated the company and ownership, and everyone bought in. If we were to say, ah, you know what, environment, we're not gonna do so much work on that anymore. You'd have a revolution it was cultural change that took many many years it took decades to get us to a point where this is who we are you know now if we misstep we get a lot of emails hey you guys are aspen what are you doing from outside of the company in inside inside of the yeah
2: yeah aspen ski company was the first to measure its carbon footprint and set targets for emissions reduction but you don't really care about that tell me why
0: yeah, so carbon footprint measuring and carbon targets. If you play that out and you say, hey, what would the fossil fuel industry want us to do? And the answer is set carbon targets, take the blame for a problem you didn't create and don't do anything that might threaten their business model. So that's why I don't like carbon footprinting. We do it because there's, well, one, we, we started it in the ski industry and it's good to know what you're, whether you're making any progress. But it has served as a massive distraction from the real work. So just as an example, what might the the fossil fuel status quo fear? A revolution. So as long as you're not doing anything revolutionary, you're good to go. Carbon targets is not revolutionary.
2: Yeah, it's not systemic disruption to their business. Exactly. It's safe. It's incremental.
0: It's worse than that. It's complicit.
2: Yeah. And it's the classic, you know, question around individual action versus systemic action and the dialogue and debate that happens there and yeah i think i align really closely to some of the things you've said around we need system-wide change and we need it yesterday right i have also seen from your company and others like yours and from individual actions the power of influence among small circles so we really need both
0: yeah well i think it's more how do you define individual action? It ain't recycling your plastic. What it is is being a citizen. So if your individual action is writing your senator and joining your town council and agitating for building code changes, that's great. But that's called movement and revolution. It's not, you know, the problem has been, individual action has been, it's about me. So I got the Patagonia shirt and the Prius and I insulated my house. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how do you be part of a movement that drives change? Because the only way big things have happened in society have been social pressure, social movements.
2: You mentioned in a number of interviews your biggest wins on greenhouse emissions reduction coming from catalyzing system change and using your company's influence to drive that change and advocate. One of the biggest Wins you've had is influencing your utility to decarbonize their energy supply. Right, right. Tell me a little bit about that. So
0: yeah, as far as our climate wins, the work we did trying to change our utility and actually successfully changing our utility is a perfect example of individual versus systemic change. One day I was looking at our carbon footprint. And it was going up, even though I'd changed all the light bulbs, built green buildings. I did everything you're supposed to do. And the, the curves going up, up, up. And I, I was initially baffled. And then I dug in and found out that the carbon intensity at our utility had gone up. So I, it was an aha moment. Ah, oh, we've got to change the utility. And so we spent 15 years of, like, brass knuckle community organizing, getting in fights with people being so controversial that at one point I was told I couldn't speak for Aspen Skiing Company anymore and we changed the utility and that now they're headed toward 100% renewable energy by 2030 legitimate non-paper transaction renewable energy and they're amazing their CEO is a climate scientist and so to me that's the greatest story because it's a you know the question is what's meaningful action well was it uncomfortable does it hurt Did it take forever? Yeah, that's
2: meaningful. You signed your life away on our waiver, so I'm assuming you're now allowed to speak for Aspen Skiing Company again. Yeah. Are there any other examples where you've managed to catalyze system change?
0: Yeah, and and also, you know, I want to be very clear. Aspen isn't the center of the world. We're not the greatest ever. We make a ton of mistakes. And so I would never, you know, say, yeah, we, we created... Systemic change through our action. It's always working in coalition, even the, the utility work. One thing that that kind of shows how we've operated and how we've thought about the problem is probably 15 years ago now. I got a call from a, a pro snowboarder named Jeremy Jones, and he said, "I've started a nonprofit. It's going to be the movement on climate." And I was like, "Great!" He said, "Will you be on the board?" I said, "Yeah." So I showed up the first board meeting. I walked in the room. Where's the board? Oh, it's these three guys. You know, it was a nascent organization. My company, Aspen Skiing Company, said, you can serve on that board. We'll pay you. You can be board chair. We'll give them money. Let's build that organization. So Protect Our Winners is now a six, seven million dollar organization. They are the movement, the climate movement from the outdoor industry, which is huge. 40 to 100 million strong, but never wielded political power. And in the most recent federal climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, Protect Our Winners was instrumental in getting a ski resort in West Virginia to pressure Joe Manchin, who's a swing senator. So that's real. Now, did POW do it? No, it was a it was a group effort. Did Aspen Skiing Company do it? No. But this is how you should be thinking about change. These are the things you would do if you wanted to drive change. Let me give you another example. In 2006, there was a lawsuit at the Supreme Court called Massachusetts versus EPA. Unbeknownst to anyone at the time, this was the most important piece of climate law in the history of the world. And we got a call. So some people were aware of this. We got a call from a nonprofit saying, will you file a legal brief on this, an amicus brief? And we said, yeah, we'll file this brief. We were the only ski resort, only outdoor industry to say this is important. Mass v. EPA was argued and won by Massachusetts. It became the basis of climate law in the United States and still is. Again, did we make that happen? No. Amicus briefs barely even get read by the Supreme Court. But that's how we should be thinking about the problem in terms of power and leverage and big scale stuff. And that act, while maybe not that powerful or effective, it informed how we were thinking as we move forward. Especially
2: when you think about the scale and reach of our industry. Right. right. If I just think about the destinations that I know and have worked with, it covers half the globe because everyone has a tourism board. And an airline, a big company like yours, we're sort of one degree of separation and we're 10% of the global economy.
0: Right. And because of the nature of the tourism beast, people care. Because what's at threat is the thing that you spent time and money and effort to get to because you love it.
2: And only the most powerful and influential people in the world ever get to set foot on an airplane. Right. So we have a chance to show them a different way of doing things.
0: This is an important point because... One of the critiques of Aspen, and look, it's legitimate. It's a center of conspicuous consumption. And I I remember midway through my career, I thought, I should really go to, you know, the Philippines and install solar panels. Like, I'd feel better about myself. And we get criticized a lot. Oh, it's so fancy here. You can't be green. And then I thought, if I did that, I'd feel better about myself. But... I would be losing access to power that is pretty unique and so if we're actually trying to leverage the power that comes through here trying to educate people trying to change them trying to engage them in conversation we could be pretty influential in the world so you're obligated to do that because of the consumptive and affluent place you're in but the opportunity is huge i mean this is all power center. This is where you go if you want to influence change.
2: Can we talk a little bit about methane capture? The the work you've done there?
0: Yep. When I started this work I always knew that we had to deal with energy use in some way because we use a ton of energy. It's very energy intensive and we needed to, to do something that would address that problem at scale and that would give us credibility for the policy work we do and the advocacy. So We installed the first solar array in the ski industry, Highlands 2.3 kW, almost nothing. And so we did that and we thought that was hard, but it didn't do anything. So then we, we created a hydroelectric plant that runs on the snowmaking system. And so in the spring it makes power and it didn't make that much energy. So we said, what do we do now? So we built a utility scale solar farm it was a million dollars. So the first project was like $20,000. The second was 100000 The next was a million. And so what would the next be? Well, the, solar, the utility-scale solar farm didn't make much more than the hydro plant. So we're like, we got to go big. And it was at that time that an old friend of mine, Randy Udall, brought an idea to go to an abandoned coal mine and capture leaking methane to make electricity. Now there's a lot going on in that idea. Coal mines happen to leak methane. That's why you have a canary in a coal mine because it's toxic and they see methane as a waste product. So Randy had found this mine that was interested in talking about this issue. We met with the mine. It was owned by Bill Koch, K-O-C-H. So about as right-wing conservative as exists on planet earth. And we're the hippies coming in saying we wanna do a climate project. And Koch didn't want to do a climate project, but he wanted to do a project that captured a wasted resource. And so we found a little patch of common ground and we did the project. So here's the stats on it. It costs $6 million, which is again, funny, a ski resort spending $6 million, which is a new lift on a what? A methane generator. And you have three truck engines that run on methane. Now it's in the process of combusting methane you're destroying it you're turning it into co2 Methane's is a greenhouse gas with a potency of 84 compared to co2 so you're destroying methane you're making electricity and you're displacing coal-fired power in the process and this plant which was built you know a dozen years ago ran for a decade making about as much power as we use and deleting triple the carbon we don't get credit for that because it all goes into the utility grid. As a coal mine ages, the methane decreases. And so now that project is just flaring the gas because we can't run the engines anymore. But it's, a, it's an amazing example. It's one of the only ones in the United States. But if you look at a, a map of methane leakage in the US, which maybe only you and I would want to look at a map like that, it's leaking all over the place. So this is this is replicable. It's something you can figure out how to do at a profit. And it addresses maybe the biggest climate problem the world faces, which is these super greenhouse gases like methane.
2: Yeah, it's a really, really commendable example. And I think it's, it's one of those stories that needs to get out to the world so that we, yes, worry about disposable plastics, but... Also, let's worry about methane leaking as well. Yeah. Are there any other examples that you're really proud of that you want to talk about?
0: So our process is, what if we really cared about climate? What would we do? And if you look at, at advertising in the ski industry, every ad, you know, the creative department comes up. And they're like, we have a great idea for a new ad. It's a skier on a powder day. And it says, come ski Aspen. And so to our credit, we said, that's boring. And there's nothing differentiating about it. So let's do something different. What if we did a climate campaign? And over the years, we've done multiple major marketing climate campaigns. The most recent one was called Give a Flake. And the idea there is, one, it's different. Two, it's a cause that matters. Three, you might have some influence. Four, customers and employees care about these issues. And so when we launched Give a Flake, it had a million postage paid postcards to Lisa Murkowski saying, you got to do more. The campaign dropped. That day, Murkowski's office called our CEO and said, what are you doing? You're attacking me on climate, but I'm trying to help you with other stuff. And so our CEO ended up having a conversation with Murkowski and basically said, yeah, you're not doing enough. Think about 10 years ago, No elected official in the U.S. would ever get called out, let alone in a national campaign, for their lack of action on climate. But we picked Murkowski intentionally because she's a potential swing vote. She's a Republican, but she's in Alaska that's getting hammered by climate change.
2: What's stopping the rest of the travel industry from following your lead on initiatives like that?
0: The call from Murkowski to the CEO initially went straight to me with what the hell's going on, Schindler? You know, that's scary. And the CEO wasn't thrilled to be defending <laughs> our campaign to Murkowski. So what's what's stopping the tourism industry is this is hard. Do you wanna do really difficult, meaningful stuff? It's gonna hurt. It's gonna be a long-term challenge. People are gonna get mad at you. You're gonna lose customers. We have lost customers over this and other issues. And business doesn't like that. Business likes things to be happy, smiley all the time. So I'm looking forward to the industry getting more aggressive and really swinging a battle axe on this. But for the most part, it's easier just to change your light bulbs.
2: When you look back in 10 years, what do you hope you've accomplished?
0: So in 10 years, I hope there's a widespread Social movement out of the outdoor and tourism industry that is bigger by a mile than the NRA, bigger than Taylor Swift's fan group, you know, it's just huge. And it means that real policy action on climate is unavoidable. And that would be, you'd win if that were the case. Think about it. If, if 70% of the population cared about climate, you'd have policy
2: we've got a few minutes left i want to drill down to some of the stickier issues in the tourism industry so most visitors fly here or drive here in an internal combustion engine scope three emissions for the tourism industry is kind of one of those awkward problems right once you go down the rabbit hole of changing a light bulbs oh that didn't move the needle starting a solar farm that didn't move the needle and the steps that right you go on inevitably as you go on your climate journey you get to the point where you calculate your scope three emissions and you say Oh, everything we do here in the destination or in our business actually doesn't really move the needle. If we're built on a foundation of people coming here and having, you know, the bulk of our emissions there or the goods that, you know, if you don't have a agricultural industry locally or supply chain locally. How do you think about that at Aspen?
0: Yeah. So once again, a visitor to Aspen didn't say, take me to Aspen destroy civilization in the process. They didn't. If there were a way to get them here without carbon emissions, they would be thrilled about that. They don't have agency to change the U.S. transportation system. So the real question is, given the impact of travel and other scope three emissions, what's our obligation? How can we wake up in the morning and feel legit about our work? And the answer is not to calculate them and buy offsets, most of which are sketchy. The answer is to work to change the whole system, to legitimately work using what power you have to change the whole enchilada so that when people fly or ski or drive, that there are no emissions associated with that. And if you want to criticize us or me, criticize us for not doing that systems change work effectively enough. But don't criticize me for not buying offsets. That's a joke.
2: Yeah, I love it. What happens to the travel industry, let's say five or 10 years from now, R&D on aviation hasn't gone exponential and people are really getting frightened about the changes we're seeing in earth systems and waking up to the energy intensity of moving people around? What happens to the travel industry if we haven't acted?
0: I mean, there's a dismal view is that it just keeps going, (laughs) you know, which is arguably where we are today. I think we're at an interesting time in history. And this this is actually a very, very interesting time because what's happening is the globe has just been in a roughly three-year La Nina cycle, which cools the planet. And we're rolling out of that into El Nino while CO2 has been going up the whole time. We've been setting temperature records or, or near records the last three years anyway. So now you're gonna have an El Nino, which is a warming trend and really high atmospheric CO2. We're gonna blow doors on records and you're gonna see fires and floods and storms and all these different things. So people are gonna wake up. I think the result is you're gonna to start to fix these problems But you're also going to have people saying, I either can't go do that trip anymore because the thing I was going to see is gone or I don't want to do it. And the other piece that's going to happen is it could get too expensive to do it. If we don't innovate, you know, if you don't create a different way of flying, there's going to be a tax on carbon at some point. And it's going to get really it's already really expensive to fly. So all these different things that climate influences ultimately just make it more expensive to do business so this is a obvious thing to fix that the outdoor and tourism industry are the obvious people to do it not least in importance because this is a way to talk to people about global sustainability problems in a way they'll understand if we say you know the insurance companies are really scary you know people go to sleep it's visceral it's about places we care about but it's also about recreation and leisure which isn't just oh that could go away no that's what makes human beings flourish and if society doesn't have the ability to relax and vacation and have fun and move down a snow slope we will not thrive as people
2: so if i gave you a magic wand and a blank checkbook made you king of the world for a week what would you do well
0: it depends how powerful the magic wand is it's
2: very powerful
0: okay I'll just speak for the US, but this has to be global. Here's the thing. We know how to solve climate change today. We have the technology and the policy tools. So what I would use my magic wand for would be to deploy that stuff. So deploy wind, deploy solar, electric vehicles, share that with the, with the, the developing world so that they can leapfrog us in the dirty development. Spend that money and put in place policy tools that would enable this to happen. You know, right now you can pollute for free. Well, let's change that. So it's such an optimistic thing to have a magic wand. But what makes it even more optimistic is we know how to solve this problem. And it's not scary. It's not scary at all.
2: One of the things I've developed such a high degree of conviction over is that all of the solutions we need to all of the environmental and interrelated, interconnected problems around housing and wealth, they exist somewhere in the world where they've been proven out, whether it's here in Aspen or hiding in another pocket in the world. Right. And we just haven't shared them well enough yet.
0: Yeah, right. Or we forgot them. I mean, I don't know if anyone's told you this, but till 1957, Aspen ran on hydropower and it wasn't big dams, it was small hydro. So we were... All renewable in 1957. That's not that long ago. Yeah.
2: Are you hopeful or optimistic or fearful about the future?
0: I'm privately pessimistic because I understand the nature of the problem. But I'm publicly optimistic because I think that humans thrive in an existential fight. And we have a good history of doing good things against impossible odds. I don't think it's the right question, though. I think the the right question is, what is this thing we're doing? Optimism or pessimism suggests a destination, like are you going to win the baseball game? And this is really a practice. How do you wake up with what set of attitudes and values? And then how do you proceed through your day? We ought to live our lives in a way that will help solve climate change. It gives us meaning. It gives us hope. It doesn't really matter if we're going to actually succeed.
2: I'm going to finish with a personal question. Feel free to pass. You're a parent. Yeah. What advice do you have for parents as they become more aware of the situation we're in?
0: Well, I mean, I think that parents are obligated to be a legitimate part of the fix. And if you're not, you're not a functional parent. You don't have to be righteous and you have to be shrill, but you have to be chipping away at the iron glacier every day. So the responsibilities of parenting include understanding what's going on in the world, and most importantly, being a participant in democracy and a citizen. And America in particular, we forgot that. We forgot, hey, you know, we don't just get to live this wonderful life. There are dues to be paid. There are taxes, but there's also participation in democracy. And that's it. You don't have to care about climate. If 100% of Americans voted, we would have solved climate because the stats on bipartisan support for climate action, it's beyond 70%. And this is true of other issues too. So you have an obligation to participate in the world.
2: Democracy is not a spectator sport. Right. Thanks for sitting down with me today.
0: Hey, thank you. My pleasure.
1: This has been Travel Beyond, presented by Destination Think. And this has also been the final episode of our Aspen season. Thanks for being here. Once again, we'd like to thank Aspen Chamber Resort Association for sponsoring this season and making all these interviews possible. You can find previous episodes of Travel Beyond and more information about this one at destinationthink.com blog. My co-host is Rodney Payne. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Danny Garapi recorded this season's interviews with Rodney on site in Aspen. Sarah raymond Debuy is co-producer. Lindsay Payne, Annika Rottiola, Katie Schreiner, and Kaylee Wallace provided production support. You can help more people find the show by subscribing to future episodes and by leaving a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for a new season of Travel Beyond in a new location that's coming soon. And we'll see you then. And one last note about Aspen.
0: I'm Eliza Voss, and I should note that we are recording in Aspen, Colorado, the ancestral
2: territory of the Uncompahgre tribe of the Ute Nation. We honor the inherent stewardship Native people have for the land, waters, and air that our residents and visitors continue to have the privilege to revel in.